the Living 1982 podcast. Were you into the punk scene in the very early 80s or someone who discovered the genre along the way? Well, we're doing some deep diving into the Seattle punk scene and sharing the story behind a band that was very short-lived but made a lasting impact with members going on to being in some of the biggest bands in the world. Their debut album was never released back in the day but is finally out now. This is the story of The Living. Uh, today's episode of The Living 1982 podcast, we are joined by Brian Fox, who was uh, the, uh, the, the erstwhile manager of The Living at, for, their, uh, for, for a number of their days. And uh, today's podcast, we will be featuring infotainment. Infotainment from Brian Fox. <laughs> Excellent. Today's show is infotainment. Okay, so I have to gather all my memories of the living and spew them forth for public consumption as the nature of infotainment. As, as is the nature. Okay, of well, I'll get start right on it. Um, first of all, my moniker as a manager, of course, is relative. But that's kind of my nature back then. I used to uh, come up with some pretty haughty titles uh, to put on records and to call myself so I could be involved in the scene. And when basically I was just the biggest fan of, of all these bands, um, I was surprised uh, coming out back out to Seattle uh, where I was born to see the, the early you know punk rock scene in Seattle in, in the mid seventies. And then just to see it progress along and uh, I remember bands, when I worked at Peaches Records, uh, your band, for example, the Fastbacks coming in and, you know, you're just such young kids and everything. And you'd come in and go, yeah, we, we got a band, we, we play rock music. And I'm like, oh, that's cute, you know? And then, uh, and then I go out and see the band and I'm like, wow, this is serious. These, these guys are bands. Uh, so being a little, about five years older than a lot of people in the scene it was just incredible to me to see these people playing this kind of music and uh, that's kind of how i ended up uh, bumping into the the living uh, i remember the first time i went to see him uh, down at a gallery in pioneer square i think it was our own damn gallery was that the mm -hmm. show i think so I'm, I'm not sure if i was actually at that show but but describe that show and, and you know, I can't imagine not being at it, but uh, yeah, I can't imagine you not being at any show. But right, uh, right, this I one every show. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think I played or the radios. Um, you know, unfortunately, my memory's finally getting bad. As I joked with uh, Brian earlier, I said generally my memory's pretty good because not only was I five years older than most people, but I was generally a little more sober. So my uh, recollection of some of these details, but the one thing I do remember, of course, is like all of a sudden there's this band playing out front. It's got a friend, Chris Edding in it, and uh, Duff is on, uh, playing drums initially, and Kim Warnick from the Fastbacks is playing bass. And uh, I was just flabbergasted. I'd seen a lot of local bands, but to see a band that really kind of had a, like a stage show and John would you know, the singer would shimmy and shake and, you know, throw his mic microphone around and spin it around in the air and all that. That was pretty impressive. And, and not only that, um, to see a band that kind of had, you know, a regular kind of singer. Um, 
you know, with punk, it was like all, all things go. And then to see somebody who kind of had some chops was kind of, kind of interesting. And uh, so I was really impressed. Um, they had a great energy and um, they did a, a breakneck pace, punk rock uh, medley of why don't we do it in the road by, and Hey Jude. And so they kind of struck me more like Generation X, you know, they were kind of positive and they weren't really turning their back on the old bands and uh, they just really had a lot of charisma and energy. So that was my first exposure to living. I don't know if that was their first show or not. I would assume so. It must have been. And it must, do you remember what month it was? It would have been, you know, mid-1981. Oh, my goodness. That Yeah. No, I... It, I would think it would be 80, but it could have been 81. Um, you know, just, I, I, I still have not, uh, you know, I, I, I want to get a little map of what was going on in 1981 and 1982 in particular, but there's, you know, and I have some posters and I have some things that are related to my own band, but I don't have a lot of things to hang uh, other people's bands on other than one of the last um, living shows with Chris was uh, December 11 at St. Joseph's with the Fastbacks and the Silly Killers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have that. So, um, and I think that that might've been their last show before, uh, before, you know, getting uh putting out the ad to get greg in yeah well it's kind of interesting to me because you know they actually had quite a bit of history where you know chris would front the band when he was playing his songs and then duff would front the band when he was playing his songs and they both switch off on guitar and drums mm -hmm. and um and that was pretty interesting like you know that's what the early shows were about they opened for at the harvard exit movie theater for four hours of beetle movies and uh, uh, there's a recording of that. And, um, but for me, uh, being brought in as their manager, one of the things I suggested was that I kind of felt like that switching thing was sort of a novelty. And um, they took it to heart and decided, you know, to focus on Duff as the front man. And it, it necessitated uh, uh, having Chris out, not just, just changing it to, Chris being the drummer and Duff being the front man. But uh, as, as interesting as it was, it was just kind of a gimmick. So I, you know, I think for the band to get more serious. Um, and as far as me being, being their manager, actually it was after that first show uh, down in Pioneer Square. And then I went and saw them at their next show at, uh, uh, what is it, Ukrainian Hall or UCT Hall to put a Queen Anne. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I walk United, in there. United Commercial Travelers. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I walk in there and the band's already playing and they had replaced Kim by then with Todd. And of course, who would not be floored walking into a room and seeing Todd up there with a Sex Pistols t-shirt and a cowboy hat and just pounding on that bass. So they, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. they really had just extra charisma and energy at that show and then i was flabbergasted to see all these teenage girls from roosevelt high like running up and kissing the singer and i thought holy shit you know this is this is like some kind of weird local excitement and uh john uh after that show uh asked me to be their manager and i kind of knew 
what the nature of being their manager was. It was just like, okay, well, you can be our biggest fan and help us with all kinds of shit. And that will be your duty as a manager because um, frankly, a lot of the things that they accomplished, uh, they accomplished themselves because Duff was very focused. So they, you know, generated these shows in Vancouver uh, on their own. Uh, they managed to organize the recording uh, on their own. But I got, I got him a few gigs. I got him to open for the rats up at the Dragon Palace, I think that was, and um, things like that. So I, I helped when I could. But for the most part, I was just around to kind of like, you know, sort out the personality differences and cheer them on because I was their biggest fan. I just thought uh, this, this is a punk band with punk energy and uh, really awesome uh, songs. That's one thing that kind of set them apart. I know later on, 10 Minute Warning was kind of given credit. Oh, you know, this is ground zero for, uh, you know, the Seattle sound. And I kind of feel like the, the living was more of that. Um, and even the fastbacks, frankly, because um, you mine classic rock elements and actually had songs. Um, and, um, you know, I don't care how crazy things get. You got you still have to have a good song. And uh, so I, I kind of my hats off to living and, and, and the fastbacks, very, you know, very eclectic, um, you know, had a wide variety of, of kinds of rock material and essentially ended up just being a great rock band, not just limited to a punk band from that time. Would right, you right, right. It, would it, you agree it, with that, Mr. Block? I would agree 100 um, percent in that. You know, going back to the year 1982 and and thinking about what all was going on, um, not just in Seattle, but <clears throat> around the country and, you know, in other parts of the world, I can't really say because I'm not, you know, wasn't tuned into the rest of the world so much, but it does really seem like, you know, there's there was waves of things happening in Seattle that had their parallels in the other cities in America that uh, that 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 were doing sort of the same thing as well as as well as our friends in in Vancouver BC were sort of going through the same thing like the you know the punk bands that started as the cheater my first band the cheaters in yeah. you know I saw you guys 1978 or, I mean, we started in 1977, but our first show was early 1978. And along with a bunch of, you know, people that were roughly our age. And, you know, your first band, you just gung-ho, you don't, you know, care. We were so happy to get any show, um, let alone to be part of the, the, the club, The Bird, and friends of the band, The Enemy, who were, you know, not just gung-ho but they were actually doing things and getting out there and going on tour and and doing things like that things that we all wanted to do but we're a bunch of you know 17 year old kids or i guess my brother yeah exactly Alex, 16 yeah the enemy were huge presence back then I... right right because they were you know doing things they were you yeah know, in a van and touring the at least the west coast and the you know they're going around and doing things and they sort of took us under, the, not under their wing, but they gave us some breaks. I mean, they put us on shows and let us practice a couple of times at their practice place and, you know, things like that gave us, you know, helped us get started. If it wasn't for them, you know, may have had a break some other way, but. Yeah. Um, 
and so you know that's that's enough fuel to live to to keep you going for a couple years um and and then the other bands you know like uh duff and andy fortier you know met them sort of in about probably about 1979 when they were you know absolutely still in high school and you know getting high school bands together and doing things like that and uh you know they're first their, their first band as a uh, actually that played was the veins which was you know chris adding duff and andy fortier chris adding yeah. the harp um after having, after having a fa failed relationship with mike refuser in uh whatever that band was called the thankless dogs i believe yeah, what about cleavage was cleavage after that Cleave, yes, yes. I spoke with Andy Fortier, and Cleavage sort of uh, morphed from the veins. And parallel to the veins was uh, uh, the other band with Johnny Vinyl. Uh, oh, the Missing Link. Missing Link, which John Conti was in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so John Vinyl straightened me out on the whole pre you know, history of all of that because- Right, right. And, and you know, it was back when, you know, six months was a long time for a band to be together back then. Yeah. I mean, you'd get together and you could find, back then you could find shows instantly because somebody would be putting on a hall show and, and somebody would be, you know, there's really not bar shows other than the Gorilla Room, which yeah. you could always yeah. get a show there within a week or two of forming your band. And, um but I mean, everything was, it, you know, it was just basically a bunch of teenagers doing whatever they can to, you know, have an excuse to get together to hang out, practice and, and play music. And, you know, things like that would, um, would, would were, were enough to go on for a while. But it, it seems like by about 1982, um, my computer keeps switching off here. Uh, it seems like by about 1982, people were maybe just getting a little, you know, it, it wasn't quite enough to, to play your hall shows. Yeah, well, things kind of started opening up because by uh, what, 83, 84, we had Metropolis, which was huge. Um, some of these clubs that, that opened up, um, you know, in, in one respect, especially now that I'm an old cruster, it's great to look back at those days when, you know, band basically had to take everything, responsibility for everything. You had to go to some, find some hall, book a show, get a PA, you know, like your flyer looking for a drummer. You know, there was no music papers per se to like, you know, put an ad in. You put things on telephone poles. You put flyers on telephone right, poles. Right, right. You go and out there, you know, hopefully you can get 10 extra people there because you just blanketed the entire city, drive around at midnight stapling these flyers everywhere i mean you know it just it's easy to look back to the 60s as being a, a, a do-it-yourself time but man i'll tell you that, that early punk scene yeah know, i would say 1979 to 1982 were as do-it-yourself as any era in history and it's yeah. true you would drive around at midnight with a with a hammer stapler and a bag of posters and you think you know at some point you think well we got to do this and then you think it's like 
well, who's actually going to see these things? Yeah. You try to second guess where people might see your posters. Yeah. You yeah. know, and maybe, you know, like a street, and if you put up enough of them along a the street, if you're driving home after work, then you would definitely be aware of it. But, you know, like one person in, you know, a hundred thousand had even heard of any of these bands. But then you think, oh, if you make the poster look cool, maybe you could trick them into going. Even though they <laughs> did, maybe it would look like something cool enough to go to that they would right. go to it. And right. I mean, that's that's all you had. Yeah, you know that was that was it. You didn't have any other yeah, way to do the it. Perception of uh, you know you couldn't get into like regular clubs because it was still considered you know pimply, unruly, uh, unskilled teenage punk bands. Right, right, so exactly. And into the regular out, club. And it was out of tune, and well, maybe out of tune. You know, the tuning sort of sorted itself out as things went on. Um, but it, you know, it was it was ratty teenage, you know, punk rock, and and the the, you know, in 1981, the traditional rock clubs were not, not not up for that. I mean, it was not yeah not exactly. Went I had to beg. I had to beg to get the living into, uh, Hibble and Hyde's, and I could only do that because it was an opening slot for Jim Bass Knight, who of course was uh, had easy access to those clubs. Sure, sure. Who people no, so actually I, I kind of called in a chit and said, "Hey, how about having the, the living open for you?" And uh, but that was it. Trying to you know trying to get uh, the living booked in any of the the normal clubs, which is kind of hilarious. Like and like I mentioned earlier, the, the fact that just a few years later, all of a sudden there was a a few venues like Metropolis where uh, bands like that could play regularly. Uh, right all bands. ages clubs and local bands could play there and they would have all the the touring bands that were you know that would draw up a few hundred people you know would also do well there and and you know that started probably 1983 maybe yeah i think about and, 83 yeah and i'd say the metropolis is probably the petri dish from which seattle you know the 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 uh, uh, weller known Seattle music scene stemmed from. Sure. You know, um, and I would add that uh, it's uh, it's interesting that the demise of the living in '82, and then Metropolis starting '83. It's like uh, you know there might have been a much bigger awareness of the living had they been playing regularly at the Metropolis, but of course by then Duff and Greg were in ten minute warning, and they. They ended up becoming pretty well known by playing Metropolis. Quite sure, sure. A time, yeah, amongst and, other places. So, but my theory is sort of in the in the the, the breeding grounds of Seattle music. You know, around right around I think 1982 is maybe the time that people were really like, okay, you play with you know one group of your friends and try to start a band and play some songs and play around for a few months and do your best and then somebody would get tired or two people would get in an argument and a fight and you'd go off and play with two, two or three of your other friends. And right, stuff right, and, right. And do that. Everyone is trying to different combinations of, uh, of people and trying different things. Andy went, uh, you know, like, like uh, speaking with Andy the other day, he was like, yeah, uh, you know, I couldn't believe when, uh, you know, because they played together in, was, was Duff in, cleavage he was in the stuff was in cleavage yeah 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 and and was andy the drummer and andy was the drummer yeah 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 and, yeah, yeah. and uh jeff larson i suppose and um 
but uh uh you know they're they're you know trying some different things and then duff and andy who were inseparable at that time you know they were always in bands together you know with without a doubt um you know duff's like well i'm gonna do this other band with chris udding and john conti who you know you've yeah. already been in the bands and andy went and played uh, started with my brother al the uh, the deans yeah the deans and which were you know less agro punk and you know a little bit more uh you know uh, a handful of sort of 60s garage band sound and they actually did get some shows at regular bars yeah and, and you know like people love to play you know the the punk music but it was really hard to, it, it just seemed like you're banging your head against the wall in some ways yeah to get anywhere and for for a few years when you start doing that you're like yeah oh if people don't like this band it's their problem we don't care you know you can have that sort of um we can have that sort of feeling, but then after a while, you just like, oh, nobody comes to our shows. The same twenty people come to each show. It doesn't matter if we put up fifty posters or two hundred. <laughs> yeah, the same. The same people come, and nobody, you know, nobody from outside of, you know, you can look in the audience and you can name everyone there, every you because they're the same people that were the last show that you went to, and that yeah. was what was great about the Seattle music scene in the early '80s because everyone did go to see each other's bands, and it was it was fun, and there was no like, well, you know, you got played on the radio and we didn't, so I'm not going to go see you guys. It's like you did. You wanted anybody to succeed, even if it wasn't your own band. It's like, yeah. please, you know, have somebody break out of this thing, you know. Yeah. And, well, and some the, of those other, some of those other bands kind of opened the doors. You know, the the bands that were a little less threatening, the Cowboys and the Heats and the Allies and the Moberleys and whatnot. And, well, they they sort of they sort of did, but then they sort of didn't either. I mean, they they got more people to come see them at, at bars and clubs. Yeah, but um, they still didn't still want to see the fastback to opening for them. <laughs> and you know the Moberleys that that first Moberleys record, which you uh, spearheaded for sure. You know, definitely was a, you know kicked down a few doors and as yeah. the, as the the fastbacks 12 inch that came out in 1982 as well um you know there was there was little stuff yeah, little along the way. yeah little increments but you know like the, you know the allies they they ended up moving to new york probably you know not long after that because you know you just felt like there was in a way there was nothing you could do here seattle was yeah just that was like kind a, of a lot of people's goals you know i know the blackouts uh were uh, a big band here in seattle early on and they were one of the first bands to get out of town and and pretty much right at the end of the, the living duff was talking about getting out of town you know all the time he saw the writing on the wall and, and um, right right it just you know you know just you know because you you where everybody was huge music fanatics and we'd go to all these touring bands shows from out of town and and seeing these you know bands that were getting somewhere and everybody wanted everyone wanted to make a killer album everyone wanted to have a killer practice place everyone want you know wanted a place where they you know you could practice 
you know, four or five days a week, you know, that was part of your thing. You'd read about the other bands. Oh yeah. Yeah. We practiced, you know, it was, it was our job. We, that's what we did is we had this band. And it's like, God, you know, what we would do at that time to have that opportunity. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you had to have, well, your crappy little job to pay your rent and, but all you really want to do is play music. And, and we're lucky that we did have enough opportunities to play music, but um, you know, everybody was just looking for, you know something to break out and and you know the the living played a bunch of shows do you remember how the recording came about um i think that was had something to do with uh, uh something to do with american music I, I i can't recall because as i mentioned earlier that was something they kind of arranged on the on their own and i was uh, just tickled um particularly because you know they went out it went in there and uh, they banged it out pretty quick. There was two sessions. Um, there was a later session with a couple things that Duff sang on. And then, uh, is that true that that main session was done uh, at American Music, or was it done somewhere else? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, okay, that's yeah, that's what I thought. The thing that floored me, of course, was when they came home with the recording. And here I am. I'm already their biggest fan and think they're an awesome band. And then they come home with that recording. I mean. I basically heard it done, finished, and was amazed at what they captured. But uh, there's part of me, of course, that wasn't surprised because um, one thing as far as the lineage of the living was uh, seeing them for quite a, a long time when they had the, uh, the dual drummer guitar lineup switching. And then uh, I still remember the day I walked over into their practice space and they were auditioning Greg Gilmore, who apparently just moved out from Gig Harbor. And uh, as you well know, you know, anybody that saw Greg drum, particularly back in that era, um, when he was just a polyrhythmic machine, um, it was quite a quite a thing to see. So to see uh, the, the, the power and focus of the living just step up how, how many more notches uh, when he joined the band. And it turned out to be, you know, the right decision having Duff um you know basically front the band and have this singer and uh have this powerful drummer and then todd uh, working with greg gilmore i mean it was just as has been mentioned in a lot of articles recently it was pretty magic combination and i think anybody that was here and saw them like we did uh you know has to admit there there was a lot going on there and um their shows just kept uh getting better and more memorable and um absolutely you know, anything could have happened should they uh, stuck together but uh you know certainly understandable why that would change and there was no surprise that duff would move on to to bigger and better things one way or another um he was a natural from the beginning and um you know just hearing the way he played guitar at such an early age or you know him as a, a drummer at an early age i mean he was already pretty formidable for the kind of music that was being done and um so yeah uh by the time you know seeing the uh, the original living at the harvard exit and then seeing him a year later you know at the dragon palace open for the rats um doing a, a killer version of ballroom blitz by the way unfortunately i don't know of any recordings of it but uh, uh what a great live act um and once again once again going back to the fact that they had you know great songs and a, and a singer and a lot of uh, charisma on stage. Um, it just made them a little more interesting than say some of the other 
uh, agro punk bands around like the Farts. Um, and it was also interesting that, you know, towards the end of the living days, one of the things that surprised me was the kind of cross-pollination that went on between the, the Farts and the living. Uh, they shared a, a, a warehouse, <laughs> like an industrial warehouse. We've talked about that before, where there was a, the only good place where you could even get remotely good sound was actually being in the, the elevator uh, <laughs> to true. rehearse in this gigantic cavern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the but anyway, the parts at, at some point living, ended up sharing that spot that um, Madison Street. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh God, what a terrible. But things got you know things got darker in the living then, and and uh, you know kind of the direction of punk was a, a little bit darker then. That's when Black Flag was slowing coming to Seattle a lot and slowing down. And I just feel like a lot of that kind of darker influence, and that's kind of how you end up with Ten Minute Warning. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, um, in, immediately in, after living, in, 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 in that that was sort of exactly how, you know, Black Flag was clearly a, a, a influence on everybody, or a lot of bands back then, because you know they started out as you know, you know, hundred miles an hour, hardcore, you know, uh, thing and and you know sort of went in that direction of of heavy music and really depressing and 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 yeah and certainly slowing that, down yeah well absolutely as you know if you you know we follow, bring we, we bring turgid in turgid turgid come course, forward the, uh, turgid is the opportunity yeah. um and not you know not surprising that that sort of had an effect when, whereas you know the living in 1982 that that uh, that recording is pretty 100 miles an hour you know it goes from about 60 miles oh, an hour yeah, yeah, to 100 yeah. and uh yeah and it's you know absolutely fantastic and greg of course was the you know i think everybody you know that wanted to play that kind of music was just not quite not the 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 combination of people in other bands was maybe not quite up to that the, the ability level was not there and then when greg joined there was yeah, no yeah. there was no top end to the ability level and also thinking that what, yeah. what sort of made the living a uh a, a, an awesome outfit is that everybody was you know kind of going for it was like like the who everyone um, in 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 the way that everybody was you know trying to be the the center stage person either by you know right just playing their oh, yeah, yeah. I see what you're or, now. yeah you know being you know right at the edge of the stage and um you know duff always yeah. talks about how doa was his you know uh, inspiration to get things going they were quite like that too you know chuck biscuits on drums just you know hitting everything you know every drum as fast as he could and randy rampage at yeah the yeah yeah stage, you know and joey shithead you know doing everything else it was there there and also generation x the the british band was was very much yeah. like that too everyone exactly. you know, wanted to be everyone had charisma and there was a lot going on Right, and everybody wanted to be equal, you know, everybody wanted to be right on the edge of the stage, you know, and yeah. that was not yeah. typical. <laughs> I don't know that that was typical in punk bands, you know, in, in, in no. the, 
the best of them it was, but uh, you all, you had to be that, but you also had to deliver the goods too, just because you were, you know, Sid Vicious standing on the edge of the stage didn't, I mean, not to, I'm not, not complaining about the Sex Pistols, they were pretty bulletproof in every way, but, um, you know, to, to be able to do that and deliver the goods in every way was, you know, was mind blowing because it's, what we who grew up listening to classic rock bands and stuff, you know, that's what we were missing in punk rock. And to see these right. few, few bands that were doing that, that that had some blazing guitar and had a insane drummer and had a front guy and you know bass player that was on the edge of the stage and totally letting it rip, you know, was was the perfect band. Also playing at a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. Now. Few bands could, few bands could keep that going, you know. Yeah. Especially in Seattle, when you're playing at art galleries and you could fight your way into a a traditional rock club, and people would just stand back there like, "Oh, what's this? This is, you know, this is too weird for me," you know. So that burning really bright. Of course, I you know remember the the Fastback's record release show that the Living played at down at the uh, Roscoe Louis Gallery, and yeah. it was maybe down the down the steps a little bit and kind of in a window, and the band set up, and we didn't even think we were going to play because half of our band members had quit, um, you know, the month before. And um, at the after the Monroe's Dance Palace show, which was DOA, the Fastbacks in the Living, which was a you know mind yeah. blower of a show. Yeah, that was a great you know, show. Um, it was a great review of that in uh, Desperate Times magazine. <laughs> Scott McCoy wrote it actually. Oh really? I, I think I, I think I did get the Desperate Times. Uh, yeah, there. he was uh, like another you know Twenty One Gun salute to Seattle's Motor City Madmen, the Living. Talked about Duff putting his head through the ceiling of the uh, club and you know right, right, right. stuff, but uh, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. That was a great show, and uh, it was great to see him get a little bit of press. I did I did want to add one thing too. I, you know, like we, I don't know if we've discussed this, but one of the reasons why I think this Seattle sound developed is because you know I've lived in other parts of the countries and I've seen the kind of purity that a lot of their punk music scenes want to have you know like you know you got the chicago sound with a agro uh, angular kind of thing but i kind of feel like the seattle sound started because out here we didn't really care if it was it was, was freaking loud guitars and it rocked we didn't care whether it was the sex pistols or led zeppelin or neil young or black flag um out here you know there just really wasn't any separation you know it's, like, I, I, it's raining outside you're sitting in the basement with a bong and uh you know you're playing all these classic rock albums and all the punk rock albums it, to me that seemed like had a lot to do with the essence of the seattle sound and what you know why it ended up manifesting the way it did you know even through punk you know it just uh really didn't have that kind of you know oh fuck those old bands you know those old dinosaur bands it's like <laughs> no they those bands were cool so <laughs> That's my theory. I, I 100% agree. Um, you know, because and, and I it never really actually occurred to me that that was a Seattle thing until we, you know, my own band gets out of town. We go up to Vancouver and whatever we played, you know, I think there's even a tape of us playing 
Highway to Hell in, in 1981 uh, somewhere. And, you know, we just learned a bunch of songs. So it's like, well, if we're going on a trip, let's learn a half a dozen other band songs so we can throw them in there, you know, as extra songs or encores or whatever. You know, we, we wanted to stick with playing mostly our own songs, but yeah. you, know, you don't want to play the same cover songs every night. So it's like, yeah. you, you know, learn a handful of odds and ends, Bad Finger and, but uh, you know, like yeah, that that went that went over okay, things like that. But you know, you play Highway to Hell in 1981 to a group of opening for DOA um, audience in Vancouver, and they they you know they hated it. They started throwing stuff and spitting at us, and and I was like, what's wrong with you guys? You know, like <laughs> it didn't it didn't even it didn't didn't even think about that 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 was taboo it's like well who didn't like acdc in you know late 70s and early 80s it's like yeah exactly well i can tell you who people yeah, yeah. devoted people. to being punk rockers and you know that that didn't go over didn't go over so well and and just it was sort of a head shaker because it's like well, who doesn't like motorhead who doesn't like you know you know like who doesn't right. like these bands like wow and well, remember, you know, look at the England, you know, it's like there's all these uh, punk bands like the Pistols and the Clash who are, you know, basically uh, trying to posture as if the, the old bands weren't uh, valuable. And then Generation X was kind of a shining light, like, oh, yeah, we we we, we like the old stuff. And uh, right. so, we so, love Mott the Hoople. They're our yeah, yeah, exactly. Album. So, you know, just it depends, you know, some 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 wanted some kind of purity to this punk and other ones didn't. I think with the living, it was interesting because they used to do a lot of uh, 60s covers when they first came out were more kind of aligned with that kind of, you know, almost power pop uh, doing Hey Jude and Why Don't We Do in the Road, uh, Beg, Borrow and Steal, Mr. You're a Better Man Than I. Um, you know, later on, they did Bowie's Cracked Actor, um, Ballroom Blitz. Um, really no problem uh, playing those kind of songs. And, and, and even later in the days of the living, they were always considering, you know, other possibilities for covers. So, um, but, you know, that's not something a lot of punks were interested in unless it was <laughs> maybe another punk song by somebody else. Uh, right, right. You could do, you could play Rise Above, but you yeah. could not play, uh, you know, why don't we do it in a road? You know, why yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, um, but there again, in you know, in in Seattle, it just it just it didn't, you know, it was just more cool music that you know we liked. I mean, who doesn't like Big Borrow and Steel? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, it's like, wait, that song is a great song, especially if you if you play it right. I mean, Fastback certainly is a great example of that too. I mean, look at all the cover songs you've got, you guys have done, and you've done them in a you know, with the right spirit and the right intent and um right and you know you know a great song is a great song. Right. And you can, you know, play it similar or not similar, you know, whatever. Just, you know, don't, you know, don't ruin it, but uh you can take some liberties or not, whatever, you know. And I just, you know, the the Seattle, I think, you know, even back then, you know, as we we're saying, like maybe did have something sort of special going on. And, you know, also in you know, right around 82, you know, the, the uh, uh, bands, a lot of them, you know, started 
getting more of a metal edge. Right, right. You know, not just in Seattle, but but around the world, around the around the country for sure. Um, and theory being that you know the metal scene in Seattle started started going in eighty two, eighty three, and you know there was it was sort of a absolutely parallel scene. There was, as far as I knew, there was not much direct you know cross-pollination the one the uh what was the the metal skating rink venue that people oh, went out to. in Kent wasn't that out in Kent or something it was out yeah on the east side and uh, you know I, I was like wow you know what I never went there you know but it was there was a there was this there was so many things to try to get people to branch out of playing because everybody loved playing kick-ass punk music yeah but you know there was by that point i'm just th thinking of what that year was like by that point there was lots of you know shirts off aggro assholes with their elbows out you know yeah people up at shows and just going to shows to fight and you know it was perfect music to fight to too of course if that's what your idea of a good time was but you know nobody in the bands thought it was cool to see people fighting well, yeah like, well and then like you pointed out you know eventually they you know they started kind of cross-pollinating i remember bands like rpm and whatnot that were punk and metal um you know so they're <laughs> right right and, and let's get the makeup first the metal place over in the east side you know girls would go to those shows whereas the the elbows out skinhead you know aggro punks would pretty much scare away all women from right the, right the, right and like you know probably 70 percent of the the guys too would have no interest in that so and you know technology evolved in that you you could you know, you could get a pretty cool guitar sound you know that and you know there's the difference between a metal guitar sound and a punk guitar sound is really nothing other than the attitude of the person playing the instrument oh sure <laughs> and sure. and so at the same time it's like well we've been kicking we've been headbutting this door and it's not really opening for us there's all the girls going to see the metal bands with long long hair and hairspray there's you know a bunch of people going to see the club shows with bands that don't play so fast, not so loud, and you know play a bunch of songs we know. And you know, '82 was kind of the year of reckoning. It's like, okay, well, the living, you know, doubled down and got the the you know got the practiced and got the sharp sound going of of you know frantic punk music, and you know had at it for the better part of 1982 i believe the last show they did was roscoe louis gallery yeah that was the yeah. actual last show which was uh july 30th 1982 yeah and that i believe that was without john um as i recall they did one show at roscoe louis gallery just as a trio but that might have been one other show. Wow, that is an interesting. Uh, it's like forty years ago now, so I'm not. Yeah, gonna, yeah. There's a lot. I'm not going to rely on anything that I can remember. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, 
there's some things I know actually really did happen, and I'll stick with those. <laughs> right, right. You know, like if you remember being there and you remember things that happened. There. Yeah, like talking to Kim about seeing the living the first time with her playing bass, and she's like, really? So, you know, <laughs> but that's something I know truly happened. So, well, yeah, man, for sure, because, you know, if you were talking to Todd Fleischman, he was like, yeah, I yeah. At the beginning, I, I think it was Kim that played the first show, because, of course, everyone would have gone to see you know duff and chris's new band for sure yeah. who wouldn't have gone do it you yeah know, it's like you're you're stoked and you know at that point i was probably 20 duff was probably 16. yeah i was probably about you know, 23 24. yeah yeah there was what you know not say what else are you going to do but what else were you going to do there your friends playing a kick-ass rock show so we're oh, on yeah well, it was so easy to get around in here back then too. You could go to every show, you know, and, and there there wasn't one every night, so it was like it was spread out. And right, you were you you'd look forward for the whole week to going to a show. Yeah, I mean, now at this point in time, I would look forward a month ahead if there was if the Living were playing at our own damn gallery. You know? Yeah, 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 exactly. No shows, but. Um, but you know, back then, you know, there was somebody's doing something. Great, let's let's go see what's what's going on. And and you know, it was it was it was awesome. Yeah, and I also like the 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 level it reached by '82 too, because I remember going out and see some of the seminal bands in '76 and '77 and '78, and um, there was a lot of spirit there, but not always a lot of technique. Um, so some of the ideas were kind of half formed, but it was still great to see bands, however primitive, playing um, original music. And uh, since I'd lived in urban environments, my father was in the military, so he moved around a lot to military bases. I wasn't in an urban environment. I didn't see people like that. I didn't see people playing original music, you know, and if you, you went to a party or something, it would be a, a go to see a cover band. I was lucky enough to be in Virginia Beach and go to a party and there was a band that did nothing but songs by trapeze. And so, wow. Yeah. And they were really good at it, you know? So anyway, to come out here and find like all these, you know, pretty young people. I remember Jenny brought uh, was a 45 buyer at the, the, the peaches. And she's the one that told me about all these early bands, like the fish sticks and the radios and the mice and everything. So I went and saw them. Uh, I remember seeing the, the mentors for the first time at the bird and uh, the telepaths and stuff like that. But just, you know, seeing it, the, the evolution year after year was pretty impressive. And like you alluded to earlier, by the time, you know, 81, 82, 83 and 84 and on, you know, all the bands were just getting more and more honed and, and better at their own visions. And then, you know, the next thing you know, we have bands here that could, you know, stack up against the, the, the the good bands coming out of any part of the country um, bands like the u-man and certainly the fastbacks were a thread that ran through this entire scene and both influenced it and, and reflected it so uh, you know my hat's off to seattle being able to step up to the plate and and certainly everybody now knows that as years went on uh, uh, seattle bands really stepped up to the plate but um, to go back to our original point, a lot of that had a root, the roots into that that era from 79 to 80 to 81, 82, 
um, the, the roadmap was kind of getting laid out. And so it was, right, right. It there, it was, before that, there wasn't a roadmap. And then, you know, in the 79, 80, there, you know, the idea of a map had come out, but there was no, there was nothing on it. <laughs> yeah, but were, you know, were any of us surprised when all this, you know, we saw Mr. F in the early days and then next thing you know, we see Green River and that sort of thing. And it's like, didn't, didn't really surprise me at all. I was thrilled and it was cool to see these new bands coming up, but uh, I, I can't really say the evolution was too much of a surprise. Right, right, because the people that wanted to play music you know, would keep reorganizing and, and trying to find something that would actually work. Yeah, and we love we love the Sex Pistols and we love Blue Cheer and there's not a problem there. Yeah, and of course we love Black Sabbath and Generation X and right. Bad Brains and yeah, the yeah, and the Beatles. Yeah, exactly. But uh, to get back to your your other point though of uh, Virginia Beach. And, you know, going as it probably was in so many cities, you know, you'd go if, if you're going to start a band, you just get together and play your favorite songs and try to get a, a show at a club opening for another band doing basically the same thing. So there was a <clears throat> there was an entire disconnect between the bands that you would start and because all the while people would be going to see shows at, you know, the the you know the paramounts and the coliseums and the arenas of the different places you know so you'd go see these bands that were playing all original songs that you buy their records and you do all that and then your band would just be playing the songs of your favorite bands that you buy the records and go see the shows there was you know it pretty much a, a full disconnect between your band and the bands that you would go see right 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 and certainly you know 1977 78 the you know the the uh, introduction of punk rock music from the US and the UK kind of gave you the thought that oh well maybe we can maybe we can do it too and in my own case it was absolutely true we had a band we tried to have a band in 1977 and we couldn't play at all. You know, we didn't even, the drummer didn't even have a, a, a drum set, just sort of banging on maybe a drum and uh, some other things. You know, it's like with no rhythmic ability, you know, it's like, well, how do you do this? You know, how do you make the sounds of things? And then at some point we started, you know, like, well, we want to, we love Bloister Cult. So it's like, Let's learn some. Eh, that's pretty tough. <laughs> Hard. Uh, and then, you know, going down to the university district and the record store there and you get records by the Sex Pistols and the Saints and the Damned. And it's, you know, like, whoa, these records are killer. You know, we can play this kind of music. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the drummer, then the drummer that we had was, you know, he had some ability, but you know, not, you know, we, we had to, you, but you can practice all the time. You know, if you're 16, 17, all you want to do is, is, is play music. I mean, even now that's all we really want to do too, but you had the, you didn't have any responsibility. You could practice as much as you wanted. You can, you know, in my own band's basement tapes from 1977 through 78, each one is a market improvement over, you know, how much lot, better. Yeah, sure. 
and um and if it wasn't if it wasn't for punk rock you know probably we would be down there playing you know beatles and rolling stones songs and trying to get a uh trying to get shows at the you know neighborhood bar you know playing yeah four well, sets the punk rock thing was great about you know the fact that pretty much anybody can do it so you're going to end up with you know bands that really aren't that good at it but are very spirited and then you know it's going to un over uh unleash people who had a potential mm -hmm. just because you know punk was so easy to to, to step into relatively speaking like these right, you know, learning a blue oyster cult riff is one thing but you know slamming out some uh, punk rock chords uh, that that can be done and um so i think you know the fact that uh there's avenues opened up with people who maybe had great ideas but not as much technique i mean that that's one of the great things about punk for sure uh, right, right. you know in any a lot of people are inspired i mean you know uh you saw a band you were inspired to buy and they moved you into that direction and um you know i watched i watched the living for two years and it always been a afraid of music and scared of it like it's something that people who have magic can do um you know i played some but uh you know after two years of watching them i start playing music too just because once again you know i watch what they did and it's like yeah they can do this it's um it's not that complicated to, to work out the <clears throat> the basics you know playing music writing songs and things like that obviously is a, a step up but actually having some instruments making some racket anybody can do that and you could come up with some great results i think the u-man is a good example of that too <clears throat> i remember their early shows and just thinking man i love these guys but i'm not sure about that racket they're playing and uh you know and then six months later they're one of the most exciting live acts in, in seattle so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and you know, some of those early U-Men shows were just fantastic. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I still cracks me up when, uh, you know, I'm working at Peaches and I'm, I'm about five years older than most of the uh, kids that are coming out and hanging out in the record department. And, you know, you guys come in and say, oh, yeah, you know, we got, we got a band and stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's that's cute. I think that's great. You guys stay out of trouble. <laughs> and then you know the first time going out to see live and it's like wow you know this is a real band these guys are playing you know and not only that like doing originals already and just, yeah 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 for sure you know and that, that, that's what you know it, it it sort of drove people you know because you know just the phrase oh they're just a cover band right you know, it's like you know yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, oh no those guys are just a cover band and it didn't matter if you played you know half other people's songs as long as you you know featured your own songs you were fine yeah um and you know because it's like it was so hard to so hard to decide because it's like well you know we have our own songs but there's all these other songs we'd love to it's like you know everything everything you could consider everything but at the at the at the time like you know you wanted to you wanted to feature your own songs because you know you worked hard on them too and and uh but and, and you didn't want to be just a cover band you know that yeah was, yeah that was one thing you didn't want to do yeah and in fact i remember when uh, uh garth brandenburg who a lot of people don't know he he was actually originally in, in some seminal uh lineup of the living 
um, you know, as they uh, developed, um, but was out fairly soon. And a good friend of mine, but uh, I remember he and I started a band and it's like, well, okay, what's the first thing we need to do? Well, yeah, maybe write a couple songs. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, let's, let's get together first and then, yeah, we'll, we'll write a couple songs because that's how you, you get a band going. And yeah. so, you know, Garth, I remember Garth whipped out a song and then I, I wrote a song and we were like, okay, we got two songs, we're a band, we're started. You know, here we go. For so two, people, two songs. Yeah. And we band we have. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> and back then, of course, we couldn't get away with the old early 70s thing of like, all right, we're gonna have two songs, but the second one's gonna be 17 minutes long with uh psychedelic uh, guitar pyrotechnics for nearly half an hour. So which is which is interesting too because you know that was absolutely verboten at at that time yeah and then not long after that you know even black flag maybe not guitar well some some guitar pyrotechnics and yeah some, you know some unscripted um you know there again they 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 came back and and threw a wrench in everyone's works by doing things like that and and it is as we know you can have a one minute song and attach an 18 minute improv to it and you're right. if you don't have that one minute song to introduce it it's going to be a lot harder to sell people on an 18 minute free form instrumental not, not impossible to do that but if you start out with a song and then let that introduce your next you know 10 15 minutes of music you you're off on a good you're it's it's a good good way to usher in your experimentation uh but of course that that was not even that was barely you know barely thought of as being acceptable until you know a little bit later yeah 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 exactly you know when bands like malfunction and things uh, came out i think they were we started moving more in that direction right that there could be there could be some you know spaced out jams yeah that, that had more in punk rock or they stuff the melvins were doing too you know oh for sure because you know. their trajectory yeah they you know similar thing we're like oh you know we're gonna have a, a five minutes the opening of this song are just going to be a symbol with some feedback and uh so in a way that's kind of just a different angle on turgid and uh yes, yeah i think turgid is a word that we should uh make sure enters the vernacular of the discussion of pre-grunge grunge and post-grunge in the seattle musical environment it was a, actually an academic study a turgid time turgid time and the uh, the people too Yes, turgid people playing turgid music in turgid times. And, you know, not to uh, under-represent the, the, the Melvins as a, uh, as a force in music, <laughs> you know, as basically taking what every, the opposite of what anyone was doing. <laughs> yeah. Turn it up and, and you know, smashing it in everyone's faces 
um, and I can't remember the first time that I saw the Melvins, but it was it was fairly early on down at the uh, you know maybe the Gray Door even. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, which was a little bit later than than 82 for sure but uh, yeah not much longer after that one yeah, i think 83 or 84 was the first time i saw him too and yeah yeah you know like i was the, down with it turgid yeah, mm -hmm. yeah this is it's this, is, this is really uh this is really taking me somewhere yeah and they also had you know fast music too and mm -hmm. are also by the way very good still um oh i agree yeah the last uh, the last time I saw the Melvins was uh, with Red Cross at uh, Numo's. You know, now it's been a couple years ago, but uh, but man, they just they just blew my shit out of the water. Yeah, well, sometimes it, it would take the live experience. I remember when Mud Honey first came out, I wasn't quite as uh, wowed uh, because their influences were so painfully obvious to me. Of bands that I really love, but boy. When they came back from their European tour and played the Moore Theater, and I saw them live, uh, you know, it's a whole different thing. And, and that's, I think, one of the things about uh, later Seattle bands um, and the, the living that has kind of a connection too, is where you know they're they're bands that are uh, pretty charismatic and they're putting on a show, and you kind of see them and realize that uh, you know this band is probably going to be bigger than this town. Um, first time seeing Soundgarden, it's like you got to be kidding me. These guys are rock stars. What are they doing playing in a in a hole? And, um, that's one of the things I mentioned uh, uh, to Brian Klein and, and stuff before is that you know one of the things that for me about the Living is they weren't really you know like a cool Seattle punk band and they weren't cool because they were so young and um, you know I just thought they were a great rock band. I, I like so many other uh, Seattle bands who are of a certain caliber it just you know you're seeing a great band um, wherever they're from so it wasn't you know kind of like oh yeah well I get to hang out with them and, and uh, you know but right. it was it was like a magic combination of people yeah yeah exactly so you know it's like wow I I, I love this band on a international level you know not just like they're my favorite local band or whatever Right, right. They, they were a real, you know, yeah. on a level of, you know, the bands that, you know, we would pay money to go see from anywhere. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, other Seattle bands had that too. The Fastbacks, the Silly Killers, the U-Men were all early favorites of mine, the Blackouts, and they, they all had uh, a lot of charisma and a lot of thrust. There's another word we need to introduce along with turgid. Turgid. Although I'm not exactly sure if there's such a thing as a turgid thrust. If there is, we've we'll defined it. <laughs> um, now, you know, we don't still don't know too much about the actual recording session. Greg uh, Gilmore doesn't remember that much about it. It was his first time in a studio, his first yeah. time hearing himself played back. And you know, and talking to him, I was like, it's very notable that you didn't hold back. It doesn't seem like you were, as especially drummers, but pretty much everyone, you know, Duff had recorded before, Chris had recorded before, John Conti, maybe, maybe not. I'm not quite sure. 
if, if any of his bands had made uh, studio visits before that, perhaps not. Um, but for a first time in a recording studio, for a drummer who had only been in this band for a few months at that time, right? So, so unhinged and yeah, oh my god, absolutely going for it. I was like, well, do you remember anything about you know that session at all? He's like, yeah, barely. I just remember being kind of nervous. It's like, well, it sure doesn't seem like you were. You were I just found nervous. Absolutely, absolutely going for it. So, you know, if that band had been able to hold it together. Uh, because you know what whatever happened people get uh, you know ideas change about what they want a band to be or you know people have little problems or you know whatever happened it seems in hindsight that it would have been great for everybody to have put those problems behind them and just you know kept firing away and if they had sent those seven songs to you know, some record label at that point and somebody yeah. and it, it seemed like it would have been a perfect stepping stone to a killer rock career, really. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think it was exposed to certain people and there there wasn't that much response. Um, I think uh, I, I, actually a great anecdote is uh, Bruce Pavitt, who just had the sub pop, you know, mixtapes back then. He actually approached the living about putting uh, some of their material on one of the, you know, early sub pop mixtapes. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that the boys coming to me and saying, you know, oh yeah, this guy and I, you know, we all kind of, kind of laughed it off. Like, oh, you know, that doesn't sound like much. Like, you know, we don't want to put a, you know, the song out on a, a cassette uh, mixtape. And uh, also uh, Neil Hubbard, who put out the Seattle Syndrome records, by the time he did the Seattle Syndrome records, he was pretty much mostly into more new wave bands. I mean, he told me that, you know, the living, I uh, submitted the living for those records and, and he turned it down because he just didn't really want punk rock on there. Um, so, so, you know, it's kind of hard to, hard to say because, I mean, you know, you listen to those songs now, any, any one of them on that demo should have turned some heads. And uh, it'd be a, a notable addition to either the Seattle Syndrome records. But, you know, by then there was a certain sector of the town that was kind of going new wave and, and uh, the living weren't part of that. Um, and, but I also, I, I would add that, um, you know, you, you kind of don't get the full picture of the band unless you hear a lot more of the material. And um, they had, you know, this is only seven songs. Uh, two of them are from uh, later in their uh, evolution, and they had quite a wide spectrum of, of songs, and uh, uh, one of them was actually turgid and long, uh, for example, uh, Burn and Sin, and uh, Greg actually recorded a four-track uh, live at the Brooklyn Zott rehearsal studio, and uh, there's a, a, a tape of that, and apparently Greg has found the original four-track um, but it, it's, you know, the meters were just peaking on that thing. And it, it's pretty rough, but it does capture uh, that ambiance. But more importantly, I think, it, you know, it had a wide spectrum of other material that's, you know, not represented in the, the demos that are being released and, and a, a completes a, di a, a different picture. And I can see where a lot of the tunes might, uh, some of the, the more power pop tunes that were kind of uh, 
leftover from earlier versions of the band probably would have been weeded out and they would have focused in on the you know the songs that just killed like on the, the demo mm -hmm. but, uh, but you know as, as you well know you know we know about a whole history of, of rock bands from the 60s and 70s and 80s and on it's like uh, you don't always get the full picture by things that are officially released no no and and, and it seems like that 1982 um you know recording you know is pretty you know it's pretty much of one mind right you know which which doesn't tell the whole story of course because it you know probably is there seven you know fastest hardest songs and you know that's okay well this is what we're what we're going for yeah and but, but there's some other additions that would have been nice that uh, that song that duff sang called bus line uh, that is on that four track recording um you know that's one of the songs i played for larry reed and he pitched the the record to sub pop uh, based on hearing that because he he had mentioned in facebook somewhere like hey yeah i remember the living play man they were a great band and i was thrilled that he remembered you know and somebody was mentioning him and of course i never missed a chance to go yeah the living were great you know you think you might know the local scene but you don't and um so anyway that bus line uh, uh tune um is, is out there in a live version posted for people who want to look for it but uh that that would have been another great addition. So it's it's clear that they had um, a, a whole plethora of other tunes that would have been uh, great to hear in the and then recording, especially because obviously they were very efficient. I mean, you look oh, at that, sure. that seven song demo. I mean, they pretty much went in and laid it down and and came out with it. Uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, I I was completely stunned, even though I just spent two years with the band and was seeing him live every show they played and to hear what they ended up harnessing in the studio is remarkable by any stretch well because we're also you know so used to going to see bands and seeing these electrifying shows and then generally when you'd get a recording of a band it would be you know dimmed down to about 50 or 60 percent of what we actually saw right right so right was, it was just not you know, it was, and it's, of course, it still is hard to capture, you know, things like that. And bands more often than not, you know, bet against themselves and they're like, oh, well, let's, you know, no, we can't do that. But, you know, they, they talk themselves out of, you know, having the wild drumming and the, you know, the, you know, because it could, it could be, you know, thought of as being, out of tune or it could be thought of as being you know out of time or you know these things that are verboten in released recorded music when you know especially at that time you know you wouldn't even you wouldn't even consider recording something in your basement and putting it out on a record you know there was like this this thing it's like oh no the record has to be you know the certain way it has to sound like every other record that was you know you wanted everything to be you know that way and and then you know now you listen to some of these bands even live recordings a, a good live recording of a, of a smoking band is just the greatest thing of all time because it's not things you get anymore and, and people you know i imagine people just 
that are love exciting music, it gets harder and harder to find something, you know, the, the, the kids of today are not necessarily in the basement playing as fast as they can and and you know the, yeah like can the play live record is not going to add anything what's that the live record now would might not add anything or or present a different picture of the band right right and the, the you know, I, I, I look at a radiohead concert and then i look at uh mc5 kick out the jams and and uh you know I'll take MC5 kick out the jams, you know, like that article said, you know, rock, maybe rock and roll's dead because there's no mistakes anymore. You know, it's almost the mistakes that, that make rock and roll. It's uh, the mistakes that define that define the people that are playing on the edge of their ability. Yeah. And that is, you know, uh, that's all we want. Yeah. Is people, it doesn't matter if you've been playing, Todd had been playing bass when they made that demo. He had been playing for a year, Matt. Yeah. yeah. At the top, you know, he didn't start playing bass until they'd ask him to be in the living. And then he was just like, I'm practicing every spare moment I have. I'm, you know, just getting my hands to work. And because he was so excited to be in a, in a cool band. Um, and Greg, obviously on the recording holds back nothing. You know, yeah. going for it, the guitar, every, the vocals. I mean, everybody's just going. You know, they're they're pushing their upper limits, um, which was just doesn't happen. There's no, you know, like people. Are, well, our upper limit is this, so let's try to, you know, make sure everything. We wouldn't want to speed up. In a yeah, room. it because sounds like you're 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 playing for your life. You're playing as if your life depends on it. I remember they talked about that with Cream. It's like, you know, in the old days, they used to play like their lives depended on it. And now they play like their bank accounts depend on it. And, right, right. Uh, it's like, yeah. like they but don't I, want anyone to tune out. It was like, uh, you know, what happened to radio in the, the 80s. You know, oh, you don't want to play that song because it's noted that if some people hear that, they'll change the station. So they, they weren't. They weren't reaching for the upper realms that things were just going to keep people from tuning out. They didn't want to throw people things that they didn't like. And, and of course, in a lot of ways that happened to a lot of bands throughout the eighties, they, you know, wanted, they, they wanted to play the nice clubs. They wanted to, you know, make more than $50 for playing a show. You know, they wanted to be able to, God, wow, you guys got $50? Really? What show was that? <laughs> I have some receipts. I okay. could I'll believe you gotta show me those. Actually, uh 50, you know, $55 for a show yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Holy um man. and and you know, like the the thoughts like the thought of actually quitting your crappy job because you were a musician, you know, that was like you know, we wanted it all. You know, we wanted to play the music that fired us up, and we wanted the thought of not having a regular job. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it was sort of this unattainable goal. So some people stuck with the tough sound, and some people migrated to playing, you know, more regular rock that, right, right, right. Could, uh, that people could understand. Yeah. I think the mentioning the work ethic is is interesting too because that's one of the things that struck me about you guys like 
of fastbacks, um, you know, what you're able to achieve, you know, pretty early on by just being disciplined enough to focus, you know, and you're, you're probably laughing over there. Yeah, discipline, that's what we're known for. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that struck me about the living was, you know, they were business, especially uh, when Greg got in the band. And to see somebody like Duff that young, um, just really focusing on the work at hand and right corralling um, the energy and like okay well yeah here's what we got this week we're practicing these days you know and we have this show on this you know like trying to get sh get shows and get out there and and and, and do it yeah and, but also just putting the work into you know okay we're doing punk rock but that doesn't mean we need to you know flesh out a, a good arrangement or uh, do something imaginative here or or practice this part so we nail it or um just right, the, and, and the nuts and bolts realm of oh no we can't do that it's like well let's try it you know? yeah let's, yeah let's... so you know that level of discipline it, 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 you know i didn't have any discipline back then so it didn't really dawn on me you know like oh wow look at that if you just focus but you know like i say to see you know kids who are five years younger than me are just really focusing in on the craft and what it need what they need to do to pull off a write a good song and then pull it off and then you know play it with energy um so i, I you know i i think that's a, a great aspect of, of the scene here was uh well of course you know for every band that had a lot of discipline i guess we can probably both think of plenty of bands that didn't have discipline and um oh, for sure uh, went the other went the other rock and roll trail of debauchery over uh, content right right and and you know there's and every and pretty much everything in between like the combinations of people if you got a if like the living where you had four people that were all very gung-ho and of the same mind to you know you know work their butts off and get the music together and and keep listening and keep working on things and you know, you could have one or two people that were slackers, or you'd get a, a band that, you know, could have gone somewhere, could have had some good songs, but it was for people who are all slackers, and, you know, they end up just being drunk all the time and never getting anything done. Yeah. Um, and for sure, I mean, that is the curse of, and, 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 you know, positive energy inspires more positive energy, and negative energy absolutely inspires more negative energy yeah uh, negative energy is the stronger energy like uh, as i was I was talking to greg uh the other the other day you can you know do all your practicing you can have your band just you know shit hot ready to smoke you go to the show and you know every everybody's ready to go but it can take one tiny thing to ruin the excitement you know one you know asshole in the audience that says the wrong thing or one you know person working the show like somebody you know there's it, one bit of negative energy can spoil you know so much of your work and you know after a few of those things happen, you know, you can be like, oh, wow, well, you know, we've worked this hard on all these things. And, you know, one thing has ruined everything. And it, <laughs> but then you think of the times where there wasn't anything like that, the, you know, the uh, Monroe's Dance Palace or the Roscoe Louis, some of these shows that the living did that, you know, 
nothing nothing got in the way they it, it's i liken it to you start playing and your feet come off the ground like a, you know an inch or two you feel like the band is is playing itself you know everything yeah. is is just slamming and i think you know that was what we noticed from you know the 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 best of the living and it was you know it was like a ball of fire it was exactly everything just went and and it was it was it was that yeah yeah magic it was a magic kick-ass band at its best and you know and i've had the same sort of feeling occasionally you start a show and you feel like you're levitating a little bit you feel like this has a mind of its own and it's like you're just like please nothing don't spoil it let it let it let it see itself out see itself right and i I would imagine it was the same with the fastbacks too but with the living i remember you know when they got to play a good show with another good band so it's like they're playing with the fastbacks or they're playing with doa or they're playing opening for husker do or they're playing with the rats um it always seemed to bring out the best in them when they were competing against another band um, I'm sure you recall, and and, um, uh, and as I recall, the fastbacks were on fire that night too. But it's like you know, okay, you're playing with DOA, you better bring your better bring your A game. Yeah, yeah, and and that was a fantastic show. And you know, I remember at the end of the the night of that, uh, Dave Gregg from DOA lit his guitar on fire in this you know little uh, rental hall. Right, <laughs> and, right. With the ceiling so low, Duff could barely, you know, like him standing up was about as high as it could get. You know, there's the, the, you know, the ceiling was right there, and uh, and well, deep- apparently, apparently he could get higher because he put his head through the ceiling, as I yeah. recall. So. <laughs> could get a little bit higher. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, a bit. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, maybe GOA knew that there was, uh, you know, that they need to, they needed to pull out one extra stop for them. Oh, right. Yeah. So they, yeah. Uh, I forget if it was, it, I, I was aware of the fact that they said in advance that they were going to do this. And that when somebody said one thing from the stage, and maybe it was me to turn off the lights in the place. It was the middle of the summer. It was, you know, 105 degrees in that joint. It was just awful. You know, and the, the windows couldn't be open because of noise complaints, and because it was the loudest, you know, it was the loudest show we could have put on for sure. And uh, so, like something was said, the lights went out. He lit his guitar on fire, and you know, and that was, you know, a, a tribute to trying to have the last word on uh, on showmanship after yeah, time honored tradition. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, in, in the firm tradition of you know, doing it upright. Yeah. But uh, I guess we're probably winding down. I'm not sure what the time is, but I, I would like to say that uh, the whole idea of me as their manager is, is, is just a moniker. And the bottom line is I was just a, a, their biggest fan. And I was very fortunate to, to see uh, most of their shows. I uh, didn't make it up to see them when they played Vancouver, but uh just to see uh, them going through all their developments and know those guys and, and uh, get to see all these great shows and the, the transition to the, the, the last version uh, so powerful of the living. So uh, a real treat for me. So um, it's a lot of gratification after 40 years. Um, I might be one of the very happiest 
people on the planet that uh, this record is coming out because uh, I've been a diehard fan since the day I first saw him. I've been championing him for 40 years. There's been numerous attempts to, to get the recordings out. And um, the fact that it's now finally not only coming out, but uh, getting a really uh, unparalleled uh, treatment. It, it never dawned on me in a million years that I'd be living, uh, living to read about the living uh, in Rolling Stone magazine. Um, so just uh, the fact that this has come around full circle and, and gotten this treatment and, and all along, I just wanted people to know that there, there was this other band uh, in Seattle that were important and now everybody gets to hear them. So uh, that's, that's my bottom line on this. Just uh, redemption for them and, uh, and a particular redemption to Todd who is just the spirit and the epitome of, of what was going on in the living. So to see his uh, beautiful face plastered on the cover of that record. And of course, as Greg pointed out, they considered using Greg Gilmore's face, but they, you know, they want to get some sales and uh, that would have just discouraged it too much. So uh, I think it's a great choice uh, that they, they picked Todd. Todd who picked up a bass the day he joined the living. Yeah. But uh, boy, you know, you can't, you can't, what Todd has, you can't teach. No, no, he was, he was the right man at the right time. Yeah. And, you know, a tip of a, a, a toast to, uh, to Stone and Regan for putting, making the record come out. Yeah. And doing such a great job on it. It just looks great. It sounds great. And uh, I, I thank them as well. What a great, great, great thing after all, all this time. So now I can finally rest. My work is done. <laughs> My good work is done here. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I suppose the, uh, the theory of band manager, it's a... Uh, it could have it could have a lot of connotations whereas in 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 your case it was you know just being a a, a champion of the band a fan and a uh, a cheerleader yeah yeah both a cheerleader uh, for the band and and for anybody that would listen to me talking about the band too so uh, yeah and um, uh, you know I, I feel like there was uh, some some function in there because you know whenever decisions were made it was uh, nice to have somebody else to bounce it off of and um so in that sense i, I did contribute um as far as you know where where the band ended up going and helping them make some of those tough decisions to change the lineup and and uh, go in a different direction and, and work on different kinds of material and you know whose songs would get used and who wasn't but uh yeah other than that it's like uh, i didn't i didn't fatten their bank account and i i didn't get them to open for yes at the coliseum and things like that no that would have that would, would have been you know i guess we you know you could only guess what might have happened if if they had stayed together past august 82 and you know kept playing and you know it was a dynamite lineup let's face yeah, it yeah 
they could have they could have gone anywhere and it would have been killer yeah i agree but you know bands seem to sometimes they only last as long as they're supposed to have um so you can't really argue with it in the end nope you, and there's of course no reason to argue because <laughs> no they should have stayed together it yeah just, yeah what what you what what you think should have happened 40 years ago just doesn't matter yeah well you can't fathom it i mean it's like you look at a band like the beatles and it's like oh you're four guys in the beatles and you argue about whether to put a organ solo or a guitar solo on there and you, you fight enough that you think about breaking up right you know you're playing in the beatles <laughs> right. and, and you know and ultimately you did break up maybe not only because of that argument and then both versions end up coming out so yeah, yeah. but of course you're not thinking of that at the time it's like no i want my guitar solo in there no we want the organ solo. yeah <laughs> it's like you know you just think of some of the dumb arguments you know especially a band that is made up of 18 through 21 year old kids such youngsters <laughs> right right and the beatles were probably how old were they in 1969 well yeah they were young but you know i don't know how young yeah yeah in my vantage point now it's like anything uh, below 59 i guess would be young something like that <laughs> and you know like all those there's there's still all right there's still some of us who never quite our our uh, our musical excitement never quite grew above about 23 years old you know still, still right 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 for that you know just excitement and of course if you're 60 years old it's so much less likely that you're going to be playing over your heads and testing your upper regions of singing and musicality but it's still possible you know we don't yeah. have to give up we oh, don't yeah. we don't have to worry we can we we can do whatever we want still and hopefully that will still yes. be you know hopefully there's yep. hopefully there's still some fire left for later in the year when uh when we can start going to shows again and playing shows again and and doing the things that we must do yeah i have little doubt that the first live show i'm see with a live rock band from me i'll probably implode because <laughs> it's, it's just been out of my system for so long yeah all i, I, I ask detox detox the rock and roll yeah, all i ask for is a 50 watt amp it doesn't have to be a 100 watt amp just a 50 watt amp and and you know maybe 412 cabinet two of them one of them you know whatever an svt a drummer that's you know that's all that's it just you know just there's there's so much possibility in that yep. brew there take it wherever you want but yeah in fact they could come out and just play an e chord and sustain it and then stop the show that would be enough for me <laughs> as long as as long as there was some thud. let's start off slow don't shock my system too quick 
Yeah. Playing the chord and sustain it and have a little feedback at the end and then call the at the end of the end of the concert. <laughs> give me some give me give me some loud music, please. Please. Yeah. We will get it. We will demand it. Okay, Kurt Block. So Fox, I guess we've been uh, great talking to you on a Zoom call. Yeah. And, um we will uh We'll have to figure out another time to raise a cup and um yeah and so uh, 40 years ago when we were uh, going out to see the living and doing that kind of shit, did you ever imagine that we'd be talking about it the way we are right now no not in any not in any not in any part of this yeah you just you just think that we just don't think you're living for the minute and the 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 moment there and you, you, you wouldn't even entertain the idea that there'd be any time that there wasn't going to be a steady helping of new bands playing kick-ass music you know that right. it was keep happening like you know you starting to listen to kick-ass music in you know when whenever it was didn't you start going to shows in 1972 or something right what did you say oh me yeah 68 68 went and saw blue cheer at the eagles auditorium in 68 you were the wow um and i saw springfield rifle playing at green lake seattle band i'm pretty mm -hmm. sure they were seattle band um that was one of the first bands i saw live and saw iron butterfly and virginia beach um but i really started going to the shows yeah during the 70s so the usual alice cooper grand funk deep purple and you know black sabbath uh, all the bands yeah 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 i managed to see quite a few of them so you know coming out here and seeing uh you know local bands um was pretty uh eye-opening because even when I saw all those big shows, uh, there weren't very many local bands and any bands I saw were in, in, in big clubs and big arenas. And so, you know, I wasn't exposed to what, whatever kind of uh, local scene was there. I think Mason was a, a big uh, local band in Virginia Beach that opened Fire and Butterfly. And they put out a record, which I'm sure fetches hundreds and hundreds of dollars now. But uh, yeah, to come out and see an entire city uh, crawling with you know young kids who want to do original music uh, it's a real eye-opener uh, playing loud original music yeah yeah so being in the city and and uh seeing the city rock was uh, a good thing i can't imagine what would happen to me if i stayed out in the boondocks but that wasn't on, that wasn't in the charts <laughs> I, I was on a mission and, uh, came <laughs> out here and, and found it so and I'm glad you did. Likewise. And I'm I'm glad that I was I'm glad that I was born into it. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was, there was not really any other choice for a lot of us. It just it's that's what uh, that's just what happened. That's what presented itself. And who who would I be to uh, steer the ship in any other direction? <laughs> yeah. Well, and and Duff uh, certainly is a prime example of that too. 
Um, you know, right, right. And, you, and you're chomping at the bit, you know, even talking, you know, a year, two years before you actually moved to California about, I got to get out of this place, you know, just. Oh, there. yeah. But I, I'm thinking even just like, oh, God, here he is in his mid-teens and he's already pet has a pedigree of a, a bunch of bands and, um, you know, is playing some ferocious guitars, writing some killer songs. And, uh, you know, he's barely 17 yet. And then, you know, he didn't wait around too much. <laughs> um, he was he he got out of this town quick uh, to to make it happen. So kudos to him for that, because uh -huh. you know, as he knew well, uh, staying here, um, it could have gone anywhere or right. nowhere I mean, if he'd waited around till 1990. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay, Kurt Block. As Good to say, have you aboard, and um, you know. We'll we'll uh, we'll pick up the torch where we left off. Yes, sir. Yeah. I love you, man. I love you, baby. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, man. Take yeah. care and have a have a fresh coffee and have a great rest of the day. Yes, sir. You too. Yeah. Take care, Brian. Bye bye. Bye now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Living 1982 podcast. Circle back for weekly episodes and find out about each week's special guests and where to stream the music by following the band's release on Instagram at the Living 1982.